Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 50. Rummy Binks. I could hardly believe it. The arrogance of it, the contempt, or was it perhaps the lack of imagination? To use that name on that letter, it was breathtaking. Well, one thing was for sure. I'd got him. Back in my room, the letter tucked away in a safe hiding place. I suddenly experienced a chill, a cold flush of apprehension. What if there really was a Binks? What if the coincidence of the name was what had made Charlie choose him as his physician from all those available across the city? I should have egg all over my face if I contacted John before making absolutely sure of my evidence. So the next morning I arose, breakfasted, and then, just after the absurd pomp and ceremony of Charlie's arrival, I strolled towards the main gate. I could see that there was a certain amount of perplexed head-scratching when the offices were found to be unlocked. Of course, Edna had left with the keys, so I'd been unable to lock up behind myself. But the young female receptionist seemed to be bearing the brunt of the telling off, judging by the floods of tears, and I hoped she wouldn't be sacked. Before I could get out onto the street, I was hailed, and Charlie himself was striding towards me. "'Going somewhere?' he said. "'Yes, I thought I might go and take a look at the ocean,' I said quickly picking a destination in the opposite direction to the hospital where Dr. Binks was supposedly resident. "'Oh, well, you can't walk. That's miles,' Charlie said. "'Kono will take you. I don't need him for hours. Chorichi?' He called to his Japanese chauffeur, who was just beginning to drive the sports car off the lot. "'Take Mr. Dando to the ocean, will you, please?' And so my first attempt at investigation was thwarted. I didn't want to risk asking Torechi to go straight to the hospital, for fear that he would report back to Charlie or Sid and they would smell a rat, so I let him drive me up to Santa Monica Boulevard and swing left towards the coast. I sat in the front, not wanting to be driven around like some potentate, and this seemed to please Torechi, who was clearly used to not being involved in any conversations that happened in the automobile. "'You like car?' he said with a big smile. "'Yes, it's very nice. "'Locomobile!' It's certainly very grand, and you drive it very smoothly. Terechi looked pleased. You drive car? No, I don't know how. I show. What? Really? Yes, the chauffeur said, jabbing his thumb towards his own shirt front. I show. Right, I said. Right-o. Mr. Kono drove me smoothly through a new town, with plenty of building work underway on either side, and I caught a glimpse of the splendid new Beverly Hills Hotel a little way off. The boulevard was then wide and clear for a distance, with short trees evenly spaced along the roadside, until it became built up again as we reached the sea. The sun shone dazzlingly back at me from the surface of the deep blue Pacific, and I caught sight of the pleasure pier, with the network of metal girders supporting the whip, a shark-shaped roller coaster. I thought maybe I could hop out there and make my own way back, but Torechi had other ideas. With a sidelong grin at me, showing all his teeth, he whipped the car away from the crowds and off up the coast, finally drawing off onto a deserted track that led inland between sand dunes and scrubby grass. 
I was suddenly struck with the impression that the man wanted to kill me, that he was not a mere chauffeur, he was Charlie's hired assassin, kept on hand to tidy up any little problems that might arise for the great man. Kono stopped the motor car and stepped out. "'You get out, please,' he said. What was going to happen? Was I about to be smacked on the head with the crank handle and dumped in the dunes? I climbed down and watched him warily, but he stepped back courteously and offered me his seat. With a sudden rush of relief, I realised he really was going to let me drive Chaplin's car. Kono climbed in beside me and quickly showed me the rudiments, the brake pedal, the gas, the steering wheel, and the very enjoyable horn, and before I really knew what I was doing, we were careering along the lane, parping at the odd pedestrian, the sea air in our faces, hoping to God nothing was coming the other way. Torechi smiled encouragingly, and occasionally grabbed the wheel to stop me running off into the tufts of marram grass between the road and the sand dunes, and when I wasn't quick enough to respond to his instruction to stop, he reached his leg over mine and stamped down on my foot and the brake pedal all at once, much to the relief of the attendant at an ice cream stand whose life was flashing before his eyes. All in all, though, it was very enjoyable, and I could certainly see why people would want to do it. Torechi and I had bonded over this little adventure, and it was easy to persuade him to show me more of the city, and wind up innocently rolling past the Casper Cone Hospital on Stevenson. I managed to get him to wait outside while I dashed in, ostensibly to pick up some medicine or other for an invented ailment, and I quickly checked an embossed name-board of hospital personnel by the main doors. Plenty of doctors, but no Dr. Binks. Ha! Just to make doubly certain, I approached the reception desk, where a severe-looking lady in a white uniform that could hardly have stood to be more starched peered over her reading spectacles at me. "'I'm here to see Dr. Binks,' I said, politely. "'No Binks,' the woman said. "'Oh, perhaps he's moved on. Do you know where I might inquire?' "'No Binks. Never has been,' she replied abruptly. "'Never has been a Dr. Binks here,' I said, just making sure I had it. "'No, no Binks!' she said, as definitive about it as anyone could hope for, and beginning to seem a little annoyed to boot. So I raised my hat and hustled back to the locomobile. That evening, thinking I would not be in Los Angeles much longer, I decided to dine at Levy's Deli, which was a rather fashionable haunt much frequented by movie folk. I was still wondering whether I had enough to contact John and set the dogs on Charlie, or whether I perhaps needed one more nail for the coffin, so I was looking forward to having a quiet meal on my own and maybe seeing who I could spot there to divert myself. As it happened, though, I was to be denied my thinking time, because as soon as I walked into the restaurant, who should I see in full flow but Charlie himself, with the broad back of Eric Campbell towards me? I could hardly ignore them, that would look distinctly odd, so I made my way between the tables to where the two of them were sitting. When I got there, though, and halted the conversation mid-anecdote, I saw that the man who was holding forth was not Chaplin at all. "'Oh, I'm terribly sorry to intrude. I thought you were Charlie Chaplin,' the fellow finished for me, nodding with a long-suffering expression on his face. "'I get that a lot.' "'Do excuse me, sir,' I smiled, turning away. "'Arthur?' It was the big man I'd taken for Eric Campbell who had spoken. I glanced back, and blow me if it wasn't Babe Hardy. "'Good heavens!' I exclaimed. "'What a pleasure. Join us, please,' Babe said." beckoning a waiter to bring me a chair. This is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Billy West. Aha, I thought, the chaplain impersonator. I thought you were working in New Jersey, I said, taking a seat. No, we're here now. There's still a King Bee Company back in Bayonne, though. Raymond Hughes is their star, Billy West said, making copies of Billy West films. What? Making copies of Billy West copies of Charlie Chaplin, you mean? 
That's it, West said with a grin. It's a crazy old world, isn't it? It sure is. So, are you working? Babe asked. I'm in the government's employ, I said, deciding to stick with my cover story, trying to encourage the bond drive and the draft. Really? Well, I'm glad to know you've found a way to serve the war effort, Arthur, he said. Back in New Jersey, I myself was filled with what you might call patriotic fervour. Was it of the sipping variety? Babe smiled. I'm serious. I took myself over to a recruiting booth to offer my services to my country. I'm sorry to say they just laughed at me. The sergeant called his colleagues over and said, Hey, boys, look at what wants to enlist. No, like I was some sort of freak. Well, gosh, that's awful. I know we're sending doughboys to France, but this is ridiculous, his pal said. And even the Krauts could hardly miss a target like that. I'm so sorry. I left with their derision ringing in my ears. It was real hurtful. I'm having to satisfy myself that making folks laugh is an honourable occupation in these straitened times. I put a consoling hand on his big shoulder. It is, my friend, believe me, it is. I thank you for saying so, and I only wish I was as convinced of it as you are. Just then, a fellow diner came past our table, peering into the corners and booths as though looking for someone in particular. I reached out and grabbed his sleeve. Stan? Oh, Stan said. I'm sorry, Arthur, I didn't see you there. I was looking for Charlie. Apparently he's due to dine here this evening. He realised that I was sitting with friends, and turned to give them a smile of greeting, and a full-fledged double-take when he saw the spitting image of Charlie Chaplin alongside me. "'I beg your pardon,' I said. "'Stan, this is Billy West, and my very good friend, Oliver Hardy. This is my old friend Stan Jefferson—oh, I mean Stan Laurel, don't I?' Babe offered his hand, and with the other he was already arranging for another chair to be brought over. "'It sure is a pleasure to make your acquaintance, Mr. Laurel,' he said, with a beaming smile. "'Why, thank you, Mr. Hardy.' Stan replied with a bow, matching Babe's exaggerated courtesy. "'Stan just made his first picture, didn't you, Stan?' I said. "'Is that so?' Babe said, all friendly interest. "'I went to see it. Everyone seemed very excited. What's happened about it?' "'Well, that's just the thing,' Stan said. "'Carl Lemley of Universal is interested, but Charlie said I should come and see him. I thought he would call to arrange an appointment, but May said I shouldn't just wait to hear from him, so I went over to the Lone Star Studios and—' "'Wait,' I said. You didn't tell the gateman that you were an old friend from the music hall, did you? As a matter of fact, I did, Stan confirmed ruefully, and they threw me right out on my ass. Aha! You're an actor, aren't you? Stan asked Babe. I've seen you in something, I'm sure of it. Oh, well, Babe simpered with a sly and modest glance at me. Perhaps a plump and runt comedy? Of course. Those are hilarious. Some really funny business. That was you. Me and Arthur here. Wait, wait, what? Stan said, astonished. That was you? Guilty, I grinned. I had no idea you'd been making flickers. What a dark horse you are. Thirty-five of them, Babe said. Handmade in Jacksonville, Florida. The happiest time of my life. Huh, thanks a lot, Billy West muttered, draining his glass. Until now, Billy, Babe grinned. Until now. Just then, a waiter strolled by, and Stan caught his eye. Excuse me, he said, but could you tell me, is Mr. Chaplin dining here this evening? "'Mr. Chaplin is in a private booth with Miss Constance Collier,' the waiter said, "'and not to be disturbed. "'Ah, um, perhaps you would be so kind as to take him a very short note?' "'Certainly, sir.' "'Stan scribbled a few words onto a scrap of paper, and the waiter went on his way. "'Billy West caught sight of a friend across the dining-room and excused himself, "'leaving me with Stan and Babe. "'A thought struck me. "'Hey, you know what?' I said. I did a double act with you, Stan, didn't I, the Rummans from Rome, and I did a double act with you, babe, as Plump and Runt. 
You two had better not do a double act together. It would cancel me out, like God solving some kind of cosmic mathematical equation. Promise me you'll never do that. I might simply cease to exist. Well, now, that would never do, Babe laughed. Would it, Stan? No, no, it wouldn't, Stan said, distracted by looking out for a reply from Chaplin, or even Charlie himself. A waiter seemed to be coming towards us, but in the event he was heading for the next table. Telephone call for you, sir, the waiter said to a self-important fellow chomping on a cigar behind us. It's a long distance from Atlanta, Georgia. It sure is, Stan muttered. Babe Hardy howled. <laughs> oh my, it sure is, he laughed, tears springing from his eyes and rolling down his plump cheeks. Stan started laughing too, his trademark giggle, the one that sent his eyebrows high up his forehead, and pretty soon I was joining in myself. Ha <laughs> ha, it sure is, Stan cried, and Babe started laughing all over again. They just kept setting one another off, and after a minute or two of this, the three of us were weak with mirth, and the whole restaurant had turned to look at us, wondering what on earth was so damned funny. Just then, the waiter who had taken Stan's message returned with a reply, hurrying across the room as though the note in his hand could stop us from causing any further disturbance. As it happened, he'd have been right, as one glance at its contents sobered Stan right up. "'What does he say?' I asked, seeing his disappointment." He says that he can't see me now, as he's just tied up at the moment, but we'll get together. What, no time? No date? No suggestion? No nothing, Stan sighed heavily. It's just a fob-off, like I was nobody. Well, forget him. You know what he's like, I said. Yes, but if Charlie could just... It could be so good, he said. And May says that I should... Oh, well, never mind. Stan was down for a little while after that. But we all got the giggles again when Babe asked for a steak and a parfait, and Stan asked them to put a parfait on his steak as well, and the rest of the evening passed as enjoyably as any I could remember with my two friends, two funny gentlemen, two funny gentlemen. Back at the bungalow, over at Lone Star, I found myself getting angry on Stan's behalf. Of course Charlie had done this sort of thing before, when he led us all to believe he was going to help the nutty burglars into the movies, and it was all just a tactic to prevent us from trespassing on his turf. It motivated me, I must say, and it got the wheels ticking over and the cogs clicking as well as the teeth grinding. I had the letter, and I'd discovered for myself that there was no Dr Binks at the Casper Cone Hospital, but was that enough? I stared at the letter again, and suddenly something about it rang a very far distant bell. What was nagging away at me? The signature, that was it. The letter itself was typed, and so was the bottom line with the doctor's name on it, but the signature, that was in ink, in handwriting. I looked more closely at it. Sincerely, Dr. A. R. Binks. It was the S of sincerely that I finally zeroed in on. It began with an upstroke that had the effect of closing both curls so that they became loops, and the whole looked like a figure eight, or perhaps an ampersand in reverse. I'd seen this before, I was sure of it. With frantic energy, I grabbed my suitcase and tipped it out on the bed. Most of my belongings were quite new, provided by John, but some few pieces of memorabilia had survived my time as a tramp when I carried a bundle on a stick, including a notebook with postcards, letters and photographs tucked between the pages. I found the particular item I was looking for, and my heart skipped a beat. There was no doubt about it. The capital S, in fact the whole word, sincerely, was identical. I sat back and scrutinised the curling postcard, a smile creeping over my face. I was given this, an artiste's mass-produced autographed snap, 
years and years ago by a desk-bound official of the Union Castle Mail Shipping Company when I'd been trying to track down who it was that had paid a sailor in their employ, ugly fellow with a twin-globe nose like a pair of testicles, to heckle me relentlessly while I was on stage. I'd kept it as a souvenir of my successful piece of amateur detective work on that occasion. The same fellow who had had it in for me back then had clearly written this letter for Charlie, masquerading as the fictitious Dr Archibald Rummy Binks. I glanced at the signature on the photograph one more time. Sincerely, it read, Sidney Chaplin. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Chapter 51. Old Comrades I awoke the next morning in an upbeat mood, ready to make my move. Charlie Chaplin had been playing his dirty tricks on me for ten years now, with the help and connivance of his mean-spirited brother, and now it was payback time. I stepped out into the sunshine to find some breakfast, and bumped into Alf Reeves crossing the lot. "'Morning, Alf. Busy day lined up?' "'Not today,' Alf said, pretty gloomily, I thought. "'Why? What's up?' It's Eric Campbell. You know that little wife of his, Pearl, used to be in vaudeville, now she marries rich men and ruins them. Uh-oh. That's right. She served divorce papers on him. A month they've been married. She claims he's been getting drunk and beating her. Can you imagine it? You couldn't meet a gentler giant. He's like a child behind those wild eyebrows and that devil's beard. Poor chap. Yes, well, he's in pieces, so no filming today. Charlie's not even coming in till tomorrow. He's looking at locations over in Sierra Madre. What about you? Oh, I reckon I'll be out of your hair soon, I said brightly, heading back east. Shame. It's been good having you around. Thanks, Alf. You too. I took my time getting on the outside of some bacon and eggs in the commissary, washed down with some strong coffee, and then I strolled out into the street, full of the joys. The nearest Western Union office was only a couple of blocks away, and as I sauntered along with my hands in my pockets, I went over in my mind the message I would send to John. C. Chaplin, doctor's letter, faked by S. Chaplin, stop. Proof in my hands, stop. Dando. That ought to do it, I reckoned. I could leave the rest to him. Of course, even Chaplin's massive popularity couldn't survive a scandal like that if it got out, as I felt sure it was about to. Shirking his duty, treating his adopted countrymen with contempt, and perpetrating a fraud to do so, well, it would be the end of him. The first Hollywood star to fall back down to earth. Sid would probably go to jail, I thought gleefully. Maybe they both would. 
I arrived at the Western Union office to find it closed until 1pm owing to staff illness. A notice taped to the door advised me that other offices could be found six blocks north on Sunset Boulevard or seven blocks west on Santa Monica. But it was a dry and dusty Californian day and I didn't feel like walking, so I decided to slip into a nearby saloon and have myself a little celebration of my impending victory in the company of my friend Mr Daniels, or perhaps it would be Mr Beam. Once installed at the bar on a tall stool, I took out Sid's letter and the photograph and looked at them once more. It was still hard to believe they would be so blasé. I wondered what I would do next. I'd assumed I'd return to New York, where I could go back to being a four-minute man. Maybe John would have further work for me to do, although that didn't seem all that likely. Of course, now that I was no longer being sought for murder, that shadow having been lifted, perhaps I should stay and try and get some work in the flickers. With Babe, perhaps, or with Stan. I realised that there was someone standing beside me, peering at me, rather intrusively. The barman glanced in his direction, but he showed no inclination to order a drink. Indeed, he wasn't even facing the bar. He was standing squarely, looking at me. I gave this chap a sidelong glance, and saw that the left sleeve of his rather smart jacket was empty and pinned across his chest. He was still just standing there, so I took another peek, and noticed that there was a crutch lodged in his right armpit. Who knew how he'd come by his injuries, but it wouldn't do to upset a war veteran, even if he was pushing his luck. So I said, as politely as I could manage, "'Can I help you, buddy?' "'I suppose I shouldn't really be surprised at you not recognising me. After all, there's not quite as much of me as there was the last time we saw one another.' I turned to face the man, as the sound of his voice took me back, back to my teenage years as a college porter, back to the student friend who'd first got me into the business of comedy by persuading me to do an impersonation of my own father in a smoking concert while he himself dragged up for a turn as the master's wife. "'Good Lord,' I said. "'Rafe! Rafe Lascombe! Fancy seeing you here! Fancy you even recognising me after all this time!' "'Arthur, my dear chap, it, it, it's positively glorious to see you again,' Lascombe said, leaning heavily on his crutch to free his hand for shaking. "'It must be ooh, all of... since you sneaked away from your father's export business to tour with us in the football match, that must have been... oh nine. I never quite shook off the performing bug, you know, he beamed. They sent me to Brazil to cure me of my infatuation with the music hall, but the office out there had a Gilbert and Sullivan Society, and we did a ripping HMS pinafore. I was poor little Buttercup, the rosiest, roundest and reddest beauty in all spithead. You always did like a dress, as I recall, I said. You were wearing one when I first caught you sneaking in after the gates were locked. Ha <laughs> ha, so I was indeed. Now how have you been, Arthur? Tell me all. "'I've been well,' I said. "'But what about you, my friend?' "'Oh, this,' Luscombe said, with a dismissive tip of the head to his ruined frame. "'I got the wrong end of an argument with a Bosch 4.2 shell, I'm afraid. "'Could be worse, though. "'The fellow next to me copped most of it. "'They never found hide nor hair of him. "'He was just, poof, off in the wind, "'along with my arm and half my leg, I might add. "'I frowned. "'Your leg?' For answer, Luscombe shifted his weight onto his right foot and then manoeuvred his crutch to give himself a swift tap on the shin, which made a deadened, solid clunk. For a moment I found I could hardly breathe. This fine, generous young man, who'd wanted nothing more than to fool around on a stage somewhere, anywhere, and make people laugh, had suffered quite unimaginable agonies, and yet here he was, as bright and cheerful as ever. "'Chin up, Arthur. I'm not for the college wall of remembrance just yet.' "'And I always get a seat on the omnibus. What?' "'Are you travelling alone?' I managed to croak out. 
"'Actually, I'm not,' Luscombe said with a grin. "'And you will recognise my companion, too.' "'I will?' "'Oh, yes, I should say so.' "'Who is it?' "'A surprise, a surprise. Just hang on to your hat.' "'Ah, here he is now.' I turned, and there, walking across the saloon from the washroom, with a big friendly grin from ear to ear, was a ghost, a walking dead man, my dear friend that I'd been mourning for two long years and hadn't seen for three, Freddy Carno Jr. Freddy. I felt the room rapidly closing in on me and emptying of oxygen. My field of vision began to shrink, until I was gaping at Freddy as if through a porthole, which became a knothole, and then a keyhole, and then I blacked out. When I came to, I was in a booth. Freddy was bringing a glass of water to my lips, and Rafe Luscombe was peering anxiously down at me. I heard myself saying, blowing bubbles in the drink until he pulled back. "'Steady, old bean. You've given yourself a bit of a bump on the noggin,' Luscombe said. "'It was that damned notice in the Times, wasn't it?' Freddy said. "'I knew it. I've seen this before.' "'Not... dead?' "'No. Sorry to disappoint.' "'Disappoint? My dear chap!' I struggled to my feet and threw my arms around him, tears of disbelief and joy coursing down my cheeks.' Once I had regained a little composure and overcome my embarrassment at fainting like a feeble child in front of two men who had seen so much, I pressed Freddy for an explanation. "'The governor,' he said. "'The war has driven him a bit cuckoo, I'm afraid. It has hit the casino hard, for one thing. It's just not the time for a pleasure resort on the Thames. It doesn't feel right, somehow.' "'And?' I said. "'And?' Well, when I got back in 1914, the war started up almost immediately, as I'm sure you know. Suddenly the music halls were very different, all flag-waving and patriotic songs. He closed his eyes and then broke into song at a woman's pitch. Oh, we don't want to lose you, but we think you ought to go. For your king and your country both need you so, Luscombe warbled along. And it dripped away at one's resistance, didn't it? It did, rather, Luscombe admitted, and one day the governor, well, he upped and volunteered me for the engineers, and I couldn't really back out, but I'd probably have volunteered sooner or later anyway. He volunteered you, I said, disbelieving. Well, yes. Anyway, I was expecting to be fighting the Huns, obviously, but in fact I got shipped out to the Gallipoli Peninsula, and we were fighting Turks for some godforsaken reason. I got shot a couple of times and, and shipped home. Shot? Where? In the Dardanelles. Painful, Luscombe quipped, clearly not for the first time, as Freddy smirked with pleasure at having squeezed that gag in. Anyway, before I got back, I was listed in the Times obituary column as killed in action. So the army made a mistake. Well, they made many, but not that one. That was the governor's doing. He put the listing in the paper himself. Why, in God's name? Marie, that's his sort of second wife, he said, turning to explain to Luscombe, said that he was grinning when he saw it. He said all the knobs, all the best people, are getting their boys killed out there, and he thought it might be good to see the old Carno name amongst them. But that's preposterous, that's crackers, I exclaimed. Yes, Freddy agreed fervently. I wasn't even known as Carno in the service. I was Fred Westcott, naturally. But ever since then, people look at me like I'm a ghost and grab hold of me to make sure I'm real. He didn't tell Mama what he'd done. I turned up on the doorstep, and she was all in black and looked ten years older. Clara next door said she'd been crying non-stop for a fortnight. I shall never forgive the old fool, never. Poor Edith, I said. 
Freddy's mother was a good friend. But listen, how are the two of you here together? I didn't even know you knew one another. We didn't, Luscombe said. We met on the crossing, which was a little on the hairy side, wasn't it? A little, Freddy agreed, and we discovered we had a shared objective. Which was? To come and visit Charlie Chaplin. Charlie? That's right. You see, we both felt he should know how much he has meant to our comrades in arms, and to ourselves. He has been the one constant beacon of light and laughter through the whole terrible nightmare, hasn't he, Fred? That's right, Freddy agreed. His films are shown constantly behind the lines, and men who have seen the most ghastly horrors find that they can still laugh. It's amazing. Really, I said. Luscombe leaned forward earnestly. In fact, he's such a presence in our lives, such a bulwark against the awfulness, that I think, without him, morale would have sunk so low we should have succumbed long ago. Do you know, Freddy went on, that Charlie's films are shown on the ceilings of hospital wards so that severely injured men don't miss out? That's true, Luscombe confirmed. I saw many myself while I was being patched up. One in particular I remember at the seaside, where Charlie was chasing a fellow's hat in the breeze, and I could actually see the fishing line that was twitching the thing this way and that. But still I laughed so hard that it took me quite a while to remember how down in the dumps I'd been. Well, I said, struggling to quite take this in, how about that? The fellow in the next bed to me at one field hospital I was in was quite fearfully bashed up, and he would cry out at all hours of the day and night for someone to come and, you know, finish him off, put him out of his misery. Christ. Yes, it did get a chap down, rather, I don't mind telling you, especially when I myself was more than a little preoccupied with wondering whether I would walk again. But even he, even he, when Charlie started cavorting on our ceiling, even he started chuckling away, his pain forgotten. Well, perhaps not forgotten, but at least set aside for a few blessed minutes. It was quite, quite unbelievable. I can believe it, Freddy said, nodding solemnly. I spoke to an eminent neurologist, actually you might remember him, Broadbent, Horace Broadbent, rooms on O staircase, right above mine. No, wait, my room was above his. Queer sort of bird. Anyway, he told me that they have the very greatest difficulty dealing with men who have experienced profound emotional and psychological trauma at the front. Shell shock is the catch-all name they've come up with for it, but it's such a new phenomenon they know relatively little about how to treat it. He told me that often the first step on the road to recovery, the very first, is speaking to the patient about Charlie. Isn't that incredible? How fortunate we are to know such a man. How proud I am of the little assistance I was able to give him on his way to becoming what he has become. Hear, hear, Freddy said earnestly. So... You've come all this way on, on what? A, a pilgrimage? Precisely. To thank him and let him know what he has done. I was reeling. The thought that my friends would be so powerfully affected by Chaplin, so convinced he was a force for good, that they would make this long and dangerous trek just to let him know, humbly, what he meant to them and the many others who had been through such horrors. Well, it took my breath away. It suddenly made me and my feelings towards Charlie the ire that had sustained me for so many years seemed achingly small and unimportant. I felt the anchors that held me in place loosening and my mind beginning to drift. Why are you here in this saloon, though? I spluttered, trying to get a grip of myself. Thought we'd meet up for a stiffener first, what? Luscombe said, and Freddy nodded. After all you've seen and done, surely you're not scared of meeting him? Well, you know, Luscombe said. He is Charlie Chaplin. A thought struck me. Wait, you're going to the studio now? 
Yes, we shall say that we are old friends from Music Hall, and don't, whatever you do, do that, I said. He's not there today, anyhow. I'll take you in to see him tomorrow morning. In the meantime, luncheon, and then later, dinner. I shall show you the finest haunts in town, where all the movie stars go, and we shall have steak, my treat. I absolutely insist. Hurrah! said Luscombe cheerfully. I excused myself then, and went to the washroom, where I threw cold water on my face, and stared at my reflection for a long, long while.'